We've been talking about faithful witness uh, in a polarized world, in a world where uh, there's just so much division, divisiveness. Uh, we're so divided and, and fragmented that not only are Christians more detached than ever from uh, the dominant culture, we're also more divided than ever about what to do about it uh, and, and how, to, how to respond. It, it feels a bit like... Uh, trying to make our way through a minefield sometimes. You never know which conversation, which comment will accidentally blow up in your face. And, and so we've been talking about that, and yet the fact that our call, despite the landscape we find ourselves in, how our call in Christ remains the same, and our cause in Christ remains indescribably worthy. Because the reality is, for all of the division, all of the confusion, all of the competing voices and ideas and agendas, in Jesus we have a better story. We have a better story, a story that has changed our lives if we are in Christ, and a story that this world desperately needs to hear and to believe, which which can sound like kind of a presumptuous and arrogant comment. We've got something everybody else needs. But it's not a story of how great we are. It's a story of how great our God is, how absolutely compassionate, how... Un- it's a story of his unrivaled worthiness, of his unique splendor and power and authority, of his unmatched holiness and his inexhaustible love his absolutely inexhaustible love for all of the competing messages in our polarized world, for all of the opposition we might expect to encounter, our greatest confidence is the unparalleled power and beauty of the gospel itself, the the beauty of Jesus himself. There is something truly unique, uh, uniquely compelling and transformative about the good news of, of Christ. And at the end of the day, it's really the only thing we actually have to offer as the people of God. What the world needs from us are not more life hacks or tips on how to do this or that or the other thing better, more self-help insights. What it needs is a supernatural message that doesn't actually come from us, but comes from heaven above. Namely, Jesus crucified, risen, and coming again. And so as we you know, think about where we've been, as we rise above cancel culture, as we break free from that swirling vortex of judgment and, and scorn that sucks us down and drowns our relationships and conversations, and as we offer a lifeline into the sweeping current of, a, of expressive individualism that tells us just to be true to yourself and follow your heart when we know that true freedom comes from belonging to Christ, not ourselves, Well, this morning, I just want to invite us onto the shore of of the stability of Christ and just to bask in the unrivaled beauty of the gospel, that our confidence in the gospel itself might be renewed and that we might be moved to continue to bear faithful witness as ambassadors for Christ. And so to do that, I want to look at the passage that Elizabeth read for us, 1 Corinthians 6. Yesterday, we looked at the end of this chapter uh, where Paul addressed one of the fundamental problems behind the Corinthians' notorious 
uh, spiritual immaturity, the, the misconception that they belonged to themselves, that they could therefore live however they wanted. And, and we connected that idea with the, the modern issue of expressive individualism. Um, this was a problem that led to all kinds of ungodly behavior among the Corinthians. I mean, throughout chapters 5 and 6, Paul calls them out for tolerating all sorts of different kind of sin. Uh, and, and basically treating sin and disobedience to God as if it were no big deal. As if it were no big deal. And, and so his tone in these chapters is one of an urgent appeal to a people who have lost sight of God and forgotten who they are. Seven times in chapters 5 to 6, he says to them, do you not know? Do you not know? Like, you're supposed to know this, but you have forgotten who you are, how you're called to live, and most importantly, you've forgotten the unparalleled power and beauty of the gospel, that that sin really is sinful because God is holy And grace really is sufficient to deal with that sin because the blood of Christ is enough. And you see that in the central central plea that Elizabeth read, verses 9 to 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? There's the sin truly is sinful. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. Sin really is sinful, but grace really is sufficient to deal with that sin. And that is the unparalleled power and beauty of the gospel. Every other grand story in this world that that tries to explain the world or to tell us how to live or that supplies some sort of framework for understanding how life should work, why it doesn't, what we ought to do about it, who we are, uh, what's true and good, how we find meaning, every other story, they all fall short in at least one of two ways. Either they minimize what the Bible calls sin, so wrongdoing, evil, injustice, uh, they, they look at the problems of this world, or they look at certain behaviors and say, well, it's actually not that bad. Uh, there's nothing really wrong here. Uh, you do what you believe is right, I'll do what I believe is right. We'll all be happy together. It's just sunshine, lollipops, and rainbows for us. And if we make a mistake, well, all you've got to do is try harder. Because it's not that bad, and you're not that bad. If you just try harder... You can make yourself better. And if somebody hurts you, just forget about it. You're kind of killing the vibe. We're all good here. Which, of course, we know. The story is telling us that, that, that sin really isn't that sinful. We know that's not true. This world is broken. And, it, and it's not just the, the moderate inconveniences we face in life, like the toilet paper shortage of 2020. We're talking about real evil, and brokenness. We know that the world doesn't work the way it's supposed to. It's, if nothing is really that bad, what do you do with something like abuse? Are we just going to write that off as though that, that doesn't matter? What do you do about oppression or injustice? If all we have to do is try harder, then why haven't any of us arrived? Why are we all still in the rat race, right? If a framework or philosophy has to minimize sin in order to make the world look good 
or to feel good within the world, well, it's, it's kind of like a toddler who thinks that they can hide just by closing their eyes really tight, right? You can't, if I can't see you, you can't see me. It's, it's cute, but it's fiction. It's fiction. The world really is broken. Now, that's one mistake that a lot of competing worldviews and stories that try to kind of tell us how the world works make. They, they minimize the sinfulness of sin. The other mistake that competing stories make is to minimize what the Bible calls grace. So mercy, forgiveness, redemption. There are a lot of grand narratives out there that uh, a lot of perspectives and worldviews that, that are brutally honest about what's wrong with the world and uh, what's wrong with you, in fact. They, they have the rule book and they are keeping score and none of us are winning, right? Uh, when you fail, you are done. That's it. They are honest about the problems, but they have no solution for where to go from here. No solution. No way of redemption. Again, it's kind of like cancel culture. Once canceled, always canceled. And, and, or any number of critical theories that are floating around today. They're very good at deconstructing. They can point out what's wrong with the world. They can't tell you how to rebuild from here. And so basically the message is don't mess up. That's the good news. Don't mess up. Right? That's all you can say. And, and so all you're left with is, is either the, the pressure of an endless performance that you know will never quite be good enough because at some point we will mess up or the resignation that none of it matters anyway. We might as well eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we'll die. That's not a solution. That's not a solution. And so the stories of this world, they basically make us choose. You can either be honest or hopeful, but you cannot be both. Every other competing story of meaning and life and, 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 and how the world works, it either, it either leaves sin unpunished or mercy withheld. You've got to pick one or the other. Only the gospel of Jesus is able to hold both of those realities together at the same time. Sin really is sinful and grace really is sufficient to deal with that sin. No other story is able to resonate with our discontent with this life while at the same time fully satisfying us. No other story. No other story frees us to be brutally honest about how messed up the world is and how messed up we are within it and yet utterly hopeful that not all is lost because there is no other message powerful enough to, or expansive enough to explain, to take everything that's wrong with this world and, and make it gloriously right. Only Christ, crucified, risen, coming again. The only good news that's actually truly good. And that's what Paul shows us in these verses. He starts with how the gospel tells an honest story. An honest story. The sinfulness of sin. It tells us like it is. And this is verses 9 and 10. If you look again at those verses, you see uh, 
We have one of, uh, one of Paul's famous lists. Paul loves making lists of, of things, especially lists of sins. He gets a lot of them in there. And, uh, and this one's pretty comprehensive. It covers the whole range of what the Bible considers unrighteous or, or sinful. And some of what makes that list in verses 9 and 10, uh, some of what, what the Bible calls sin, we may find personally offensive. Like if, if we were making the list, it would probably read differently in some places. And certainly, the people we're sharing Christ with will find some of these things offensive. But if we don't understand the problem of sin, if we're not honest about it, we will never appreciate the gift of grace. And to really understand the Bible's concept of sin, we actually have to start with God and His holiness. The offensiveness of sin doesn't make any sense until you see it against the holiness of God. Uh, it's kind of like hey, you, you don't really understand how dirty your gym socks are until you buy new ones and you see them side by side, right? And, and before God, we're not just a little bit yellow and stinky with the occasional hole here or there. We are black. Like our hearts are dark. Our lives are broken. The Bible tells us that God is the one who is the blessed and only sovereign the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality and who dwells in unapproachable light. God is over us in authority. He is beyond us in power. He is above us in majesty and wisdom, and he is for us in love. He is perfect in every way. And one of the results of that perfection is, That holiness and moral perfection is that nothing unholy or imperfect can dwell with him. He is too, it's like, it's like the, the radiance of the sun. It is so glorious, but if you were to approach it, you would be consumed by its glory, by its heat. That is the holiness of our God. As Psalm 5, 4 says, for you uh, are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. That is his holiness. And that's the first thing that the Corinthians had lost sight of in their relationship with God. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. They had forgotten how holy God was. They had trivialized their sin because they had a trivial view of God. The only way you can live or conclude that sin is no big deal is if you think that God is no big deal. That's the only way you can get there. And that's where the Corinthians were living. They were unconcerned about sin in their midst and in their lives. Sexual immorality, idolatry, adultery, homosexual practice, thievery, greed, drunkenness, reviling, swindling. No big deal. But God's kind of a big deal, isn't he? His incomparable holiness. He made us for his purposes And even though we've all rebelled against him, he sent his son to redeem us for his purposes. He didn't just wipe his hands and start over, which means that we have to take sin seriously when we talk about a relationship with God. The gospel recognizes the sinfulness of all sin, not just the sexual sin variety, not just the ones that we find particularly uncomfortable or unpleasant, but all sin from greed and dishonesty to adultery and pornography, 
anything we do that disregards God's holiness, that, that disregards his word, that forsakes his rule, is, is ultimately, it's treachery. It's, it's high treason against heaven. All sin is sinful, and all of us have fallen short. And, and we don't have to minimize that. We don't have to pretend like we have it together, like we've made it, we've figured it out. In fact, we can't. We can't minimize sin. We can't pretend it away. We can't hide it. Our Lord sees it, and guess what? The world around us, they see it too. You, you can't close your eyes tight enough and think we're all okay here. We have to be honest about the sinfulness of sin. And, and here's the beauty of it all. We don't have to hide it. We don't have to pretend or put on a show. Because in Jesus, not only can we be honest about the sinfulness of sin, but we can be hopeful about the sufficiency of grace. We have an adequate solution in our Lord. The gospel is not just an honest story. It is a hopeful story, a hopeful story, because it declares the sufficiency of Christ's grace. And that's where Paul goes in verse 11. He, he gives us this list of sins, showing us the, the honesty, the sinfulness of sin. And, and then he concludes that by reminding them, and such were some of you. Like Paul doesn't pull his punches. He doesn't like, you know, there's a lot of bad people out there, but not you people. He's like, no, you are in that group, right? He goes there, but then immediately he follows it with, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. The gospel is a message of grace. It's a message of grace, and that grace comes to us through faith in Jesus Christ. And, and by grace, you know, it's a, it's a word we use in the church all the time, right? And so we can, we can get really comfortable with the word without remembering what we're really talking about. Grace in the, in the scriptures is not just mercy or forgiveness. It's, it's this picture of being given something absolutely wonderful, even though we deserve something utterly terrible. That's, that's grace. We deserve judgment for our treachery against the heavenly crown. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, but instead God gives us himself. Instead of judgment, he gives us himself. He adopts us into his family. He, he acquits us of our sin. He, he takes us from the dungeon to his own dinner table. And what makes that grace possible is the life, death, and resurrection of our Savior, Jesus. So in verse 11, Paul highlights three results of believing the gospel and trusting Jesus. And I'm going to start back at the back and work our way forward. But, but the first result is that the gospel justifies us. The gospel justifies us. It declares, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a technical term there, but what that means is that the gospel declares us not guilty of our sin. It vindicates us. It, it, it announces our innocence, even though we were actually guilty. But it declares us not guilty, even though we failed God in countless ways. And the way that the gospel does that is because Jesus stands in our place. 
the righteous for the unrighteous, our perfect representative in his life and his death, the one who never sinned or succumbed to temptation or rebellion. And when he went to the cross, he took upon himself every way that we have robbed God of his glory, every selfish deed, every broken desire, every sexual sin, every judgmental reaction. He took it all that he might bear it in our place. The full weight of God's holy anger against that sin to exhaust it and clear us of the charges against us. We, we heard this verse just a little bit ago. Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Through our union with Jesus, God deals justly with sin and mercifully with sinners at the same time. He deals justly with sin, having punished it through the cross, so that he can deal mercifully with sinners, clearing us of the charges, forgiving us, and inviting us into his own family. The gospel justifies us. But then second, the gospel sanctifies us. The gospel sanctifies us. It sets us apart for service to God. Sanctify, again, it's another one of those religious words, right? And, and, but, it, it, but it means to be set apart, to be made holy. Like some of us uh, probably have in our home dishes that we never eat on because they are sanctified for the special holiday meals, right? They're set apart. Well, that's what Jesus does for us, not to leave us in the dusty cabinet, but rather to put us into service for his kingdom. He sets us apart. He makes us like him that we might be of service to God. Grace comes to us as we are, but it does not leave us where we are. It makes us more and more like Christ. It changes us which means no longer following our hearts, but denying ourselves, taking up our cross and following him. Again, so much of of the confusion and darkness of our day is is a symptom of that kind of expressive individualism, that myth of self-ownership, that if I am my own and I belong to myself, I get to decide what's good, true, what's right, how to live, and so on. And, and if God wants to play a role in that, it's going to have to be a supporting role, and I have to approve the script. Like That's kind of how we operate. And, and yet, as we saw yesterday at the end of this chapter, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The gospel sets us apart so that we're no longer living for our own glory, but for the Lord's glory. It commissions us for his service and equips us for that service by the Spirit that he gives us. The Lord is at work to realign our desires with his desires so that we, as we grow in our service to the Lord, we grow in in the likeness of the Lord as well. Which does not mean, which does not mean that we will never face temptation or even that we'll never succumb to it, that we'll never mess up and sin. You will. But the gospel changes our relationship with sin. It changes our relationship. It's no longer a delight that we explore and exploit. 
It's a burden that we long to be free from and for which we are already forgiven. It changes our relationship with sin. And, and there will be a day when that relationship is changed completely, when our Lord returns, when either we go to be with him or he comes back uh, for us. Then the whole presence of sin will be done. But in the meantime, we grow. We grow spiritually, abiding in Christ daily to know him and love him and receive his love for us, which changes us more and more to be like him. The gospel sanctifies us. But then third, the third thing Paul points out in verse 11, the gospel cleanses us. It washes us. You have been washed. It cleanses us from all of our guilt and shame, which might be the hardest part for some of us. Like, we can go there intellectually that, I, that the charges have been dropped. Great. We can even go there volitionally. I want to serve the Lord. But we can't quite get there emotionally. We feel like we're still carrying around all of the baggage of our sin and shame, our guilt. We feel stuck, crippled by the shame of what we've done or afraid that somebody's going to find out how bad I actually am. But God's grace is sufficient. And we saw yesterday, not just for our sin, but for our shame as well. Christ died for that too. Christ has borne our shame such that the blood of Christ washes us clean in every way. In every way. It makes us whole. It makes us new such that we are not defined by our desires. We're not defined by our failures. And we're not even defined by our successes. We're defined by Christ. He is our hope. He is our identity, our significance. And he has cleansed us by his blood. I love how J.C. Ryle captures the love of Christ for both sinners and saints. He writes, The love of Christ to sinners is the very essence and marrow of the gospel that he should love us at all and care for our souls, that he should love us before we love him or even know anything about him, that he should love us so much as to come into the world and save us, take our nature on him, bear our sins and die for us on the cross. All this is wonderful indeed. But the love of Christ to saints, to believers, is no less wonderful in its way than his love to sinners, that he should bear with all our countless infirmities from grace to glory, that he should never tire of their endless inconsistencies and petty provocations, that he should go on forgiving and forgetting incessantly and never be provoked to cast them off and give them up. All this is marvelous indeed. Let no man be afraid of beginning with Christ if he desires to be saved. The chief of sinners may come to him with boldness and trust him for pardon with confidence. And let no man be afraid of going on with Christ after he has once come to him and believed. Let him not fancy that Christ will cast him off because of failures 
and dismiss him into his former hopelessness on account of infirmities, those whom he receives, he always keeps. Those whom he loves at first, he loves at last. His promise shall never be broken, and it is for saints as well as for sinners. He that comes to me, I will never cast out. Left to ourselves, we are fallen and broken in sin. Paul says, such were some of you. But in Jesus, we have a better story than anything that this world can offer. And we don't have to be dishonest about how bad it is or how bad we are. You don't have to despair that there's no solution. The gospel of Jesus frees us to be honest about the sinfulness of sin because it supplies the grace to redeem us and make us whole. And my prayer for us this weekend is not only that we would rest in that sweet sufficiency of the gospel, but that we would live out and give out that message to others around us as ambassadors of Christ with confidence in the better story that we've received. We are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal to us. We implore all whom we meet on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Because such were some of us too. But we were washed, we were sanctified, we were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, what an absolute incredible joy to be able to call you Father. We, look, we know, Lord, that it, there's nothing in us that has made that possible. Thank you for the mercy of Jesus that frees us to not have to pretend or perform or to hide, but to simply come before you as we are and find in you an inexhaustible love that has proven itself, expressed itself preeminently in the cross and resurrection. Lord, we praise you, we thank you, and we pray that you would be pleased to continue to use Westgate Church as a beacon of hope and honesty in the world around. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.